word going forth. All right, Matthew chapter 17 is where we're going to be uh, landing. We're going to uh, prayerfully finish the 17th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. We'll be picking up in verse 14 this morning. As you head that direction, though, I'll give you a little uh, intro, reminder of where we've been. Uh, The gospel according to Matthew focuses on a, a main theme, and that is Matthew writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to portray, to lay out there for them, who their long-awaited Messiah actually is, and it is uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And so uh, Matthew is going to order his gospel not chronologically like the other gospel accounts, at least uh, like Mark and Luke do. He's going to order his gospel uh, top, topically or uh, from a, from a uh, topical standpoint. He's going to assemble this uh, gospel account. And so what we find is in chapters 1 through 10, the, the king is being revealed in those chapters. And then chapters 11 through 13, this king, this long-awaited Messiah that the nation of Israel waited on for thousands of years, uh, they then began to resist him. They didn't care for the message that he was sharing with them. And so it goes from uh, the king being revealed to then the king being resisted to now where we're at in this section of Scripture, the king is now retreating. But as he is retreating, he doesn't just uh, simply retreat and walk away entirely from everyone. He takes his closest associates with him. He takes his disciples along with him, and Jesus uses this opportunity as a time to teach and to train them. And why is it so important that he teaches and trains? Well, this is the beginning of the New Testament church. So at least for 11 of these guys, Judas obviously isn't going to make the cut, but for these 11, they are going to be the start of the church. So on the day of Pentecost, which, by the way, this is a Pentecost Sunday, so we get to celebrate the Holy Spirit coming down on Acts chapter 2. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a power. You're going to receive power of the Holy Spirit. The word in the Greek is a dunamos. That's dynamite. So Jesus said, you're going to get the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit given to you right there. And that's where the church actually was birthed. And so we're celebrating that on this Sunday. Uh, But we see Jesus is teaching and training these guys because they were going to be the beginnings of the church. So as he retreats, what we looked at last week is he takes uh, Peter, James, and John, three of his closest associates, up on the top of a high mountain in the beginning of Matthew 17. And it's here he teaches them about death. And what he's teaching them in particular in this setting is that Jesus is going to be glorified in his death. What does that mean for you and I? It means that if he's going to be glorified in his death, and we are to be like him, then uh, death is merely just a passing from one point to the next. We can actually be glorified in death. And so they have this wonderful mountaintop experience up there at the top of the mountain. And Peter, he's excited about this. So excited, he very impetuously says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. He gets so excited, he says, let's build a tent. Let's build one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, and let's just hang out up here on the top of the mountain. This is an awesome spot for us to be, except uh, with any mountaintop experience. If you've ever had one of those kind of experiences, what has to happen after? You have to come down off the mountain. So if you've ever been in a place where you've had these mountaintop experiences with the Lord, maybe it's a conference, maybe it's a church revival, perhaps it's a church camp, I mean, it is it is unbelievable. You get in that spot with him, and you're so connected, and, and it's just like, Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. Like, that's how we feel coming down off the mountain. And this is how 
these guys feel, and they're on their way down with the Lord, and wow, this is awesome. And then they get to the valley. <laughs> and what we're going to see today is they go from Jesus, Jesus, Jesus to, you know where you are? You're in the jungle, baby. I mean, it is crazy town down there. Demon-possessed boy. There's disciples fighting, Pharisees. It is, it is straight-up crazy. And I share that with you to begin with to say if you've ever had the mountaintop experience, know that there's going to be a valley to come. That's not to terrify you or to scare you. It's more to prepare you for what is getting ready to take place. It's to actually have eyes to see what's really happening. The enemy doesn't want you to stay in that high place. He wants to do anything he can to attack. And so what we see is for the other nine disciples, they are, in fact, being attacked. So pick up with me. In verse 14 of Matthew 17. And when uh, they had come to the multitude, this is Peter, James, John, and Jesus, the four of them come together, they come down to the multitude. A man came to him, Jesus, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured that very hour. Verse 19, And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And verse 20, And Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you that if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, for nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And so, as was laid out in the intro, there's this crazy scene happening at the bottom of the mountainside. And they come down, and what they run into is a man who's brought his son to the disciples to have a demon exercised. The way it reads in verse 14, or excuse me, in verse 15 is the man tells Jesus, my son is an epileptic. But if you grew up in the Baptist church like I did, we read the old King James. And there it says, my son is a lunatic. And literally what that means is it's the Greek word moonstruck. And they believed that people with demon possession, that the, the demonic activity would actually increase when the full moon was out. This is where the word lunatic comes from. It relates to the lunar cycle. And so the man says, look, my son is a lunatic. What he's really saying is he's demon possessed by a demon that gets worse in these uh, lunar events. And so then Jesus uh, exercises the demon, but the disciples cannot exercise the demon at all. And uh, meanwhile, what's taking place here is you've got the disciples, they're upset, the nine that were left behind. They're upset because they weren't able uh, to exercise the demon. You've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees that always are circling around Jesus wanting to disprove what's taking place. So they're, meanwhile, blaming the disciples. See, we told you you had no power. And then you've got Jesus and Peter and James and John, and they're walking into the scene, and all the while, there's a boy that's dying. And so all these people are all confused, and it's mass, mass hysteria, but the reality is there's a young man here who is losing his life. This demon, we're told in Mark's account, would literally throw him into the fire. It would throw him into the water, and it's this horrific scene. 
And what Jesus addresses is the issue in this scene. It's actually a heart problem. That what he talks about is it's because of their unbelief. That's the problem at hand. And so when we think about what's happening in our culture, in our society, every side wants to blame everybody else, right? The educators want to blame the government. The government wants to blame the educator. The parents want to blame everyone. There's all these folks that want to point every kind of finger, but here's the reality. It really boils down to unbelief. And what I mean by that is we've seen uh, throughout the last 50 years at least uh, belief, God actually being driven out of the education system. And who suffers? The children. We, we've seen government actually being the ones that have imposed that upon the education system, have told them, you must drive God out. Why? Because they're becoming more and more godless all the time. God being driven out of them. Separation of church and state. It was such a farce. The reality is our government, our, our, our very country was founded upon Christian principles, and yet we've uh, put ourselves in a position to have them completely driven out of every single sector of society. But then... Uh, who are supposed to be the salt and the light in this spot? Well, that's the church. And what do we find in church after church after church? We find unbelief. We have absolutely allowed it to take place. And so when we want to get busy pointing fingers all over us, who's responsible for this? It ultimately has to come back to us. We allowed this to take place. And it's all based in, rooted around uh, unbelief. Now the question is, how is this possible? I mean, there are people all over that believe. And by the way, when you look uh, at our education system, I just want to prop it up for a second. There are wonderful Christian people in our schools. I, I can't d d disclose the name of this person, but we had someone email my wife at 5.30 this morning, at least she forwarded it to me at 5.30, about uh, how wonderful... She thought our kids were. This is not to say our kids are wonderful. But she was actually writing a Sunday school lesson thinking about our children and talking about kindness. And this is someone that's inside the school system, loving Jesus, loving on kids. And so the, the point is really what we've allowed to take place because we have not believed that God can actually deliver. Now, again, we go and we look at the whole scenario, and we go, there's lots of belief in God all around, Right? Well, I think the issue at hand is James writes specifically to uh, that kind of belief. In James chapter 2, verse 19, here's what he says. You believe that there is one God. Lots of people believe there's a God. There's some spiritual force. You believe that there's a God, you do well. There you go, James is commending us. You believe that there's a God, you're doing a good job. But then he goes on. You've got to love how James was uh, not one to mince words. He says, even the demons believe. <laughs> And they tremble. You see, belief in God, believing that there is a God, is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about faith. Faith is different than just simply believing. Faith, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, is believing in spite of consequences. The issue for the demons is they believe they have no faith. What faith actually looks like, it actually shows up in our obedience. That's how we exhibit faith. You wonder, do I have faith in my life or do I not? I'm not sure if I'm faithful. The real question is, am I obedient? That's what faith actually looks like. Now, this next line I came up with all on my own. You know how genius I am. A lack of faith 
is shown by a lack of obedience. Uh, found on the internet this quote right here that if we really believe something, we will act according to that belief. That's the reality. We sit through messages and we listen to podcasts and we share with people, but the reality is we do not actually believe. If we did believe and believed completely with our heart, then obedience wouldn't be an issue. It'd be an afterthought. That would be, that, that would be the case for our churches, for our governments, for our schools. It would run completely through all parts, all fabrics of our culture. And so the issue at hand is one of faith. It's one of unbelief. And so some things to observe about unbelief. Well, we're going to hover around this for just a minute. What are some things we can observe for unbelief? Well, first of all, what unbelief actually does is it saddens the heart of Jesus. I mean, here he is. He's the God of the universe. He's had these 12 guys now surrounding him, plus who knows how many other followers. And they've been following him for years now. And as Jesus is going, where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew, things are now heading towards the cross. He's winding up his time here on earth. He's been teaching and training, and they've seen miracles and awesome things have taken place. And, and, and yet, they are in a spot of complete unbelief. It's got to be heartbreaking. I mean, these are supposed to be his guys. They're supposed to have enough faith to be able to do this thing. He gave them the power, but they didn't have enough faith to believe they could exercise this demon in this place. And so this saddens him. It breaks his heart. And the second piece goes along with it is that it inhibits the work of his spirit. Seeing God do any kind of great work in our life, if we want to see it, it has to begin in the place of faith. For the nation of Israel, as God brought them out of Egypt, they saw the miraculous, right? They saw these unbelievable ten plagues. At the end of the plagues, the Red Sea parts. Some two million people make their way across the Red Sea into the Sinai. They see all these awesome things, and yet, even in the midst of that, what happens when it comes time to go into the promised land? Unbelief. A lack of faith. Uh, The writer of the Hebrews says this about that group of people there in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Hebrews. He says, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not, that they would not enter his rest? Notice he doesn't even call it the promised land. He calls it rest. It was supposed to be peace. But those who did not obey. Verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The real issue at hand for the nation of Israel, why they could not go into the promised land for that 40 years, wasn't that the journey was so long. It was an 11-day journey by foot if you're moving at 10 miles per hour per day for those 2 million people. It should have taken them 11 days. They stretched that road trip into 40 years. So if you've ever been on a road trip with your kids, you think it's gone long, you got nothing on these folks. That means 40-year road trip, all because they did not believe. And the next piece goes along with it. it. It also prolonged their suffering. As Jesus was ministering there in his hometown of Nazareth, what we're told in Matthew 13, we covered it a few weeks back, is that he could do no mighty works in Nazareth, not because Jesus didn't have the power, but because of their unbelief. 
Unbelief actually kept those people in their sin, in their physical, their spiritual dilemmas even longer because they did not believe. So here we are, and all these people have lacked faith, right? The disciples, they've struggled with unbelief. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, of course, do not believe. And so here all have lacked faith, even this boy's father, who approaches Jesus with his heart broken. The difference between them, though, and the boy's father is that he recognized it and acknowledged it. In Mark's account, Mark chapter 9, this is the same story uh, in the synoptic account of Mark. He says in verse 22, And often he, this is speaking of the boy, has been uh, thrown into the fire and into the water where the demon wants to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him in verse 23, If you can believe, all things are possible for him who believes. In verse 24 of Mark 9, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't know if you're a highlighter person in your Bible or not, but if you are, I would recommend you highlight that verse. That is one of my favorite because invariably in this Christian walk, we are going to have moments, seasons, years, decades of unbelief. Look at what, how Jesus handles this situation. This man cries out. He's just flat out honest with the Lord. Look, I believe, help my unbelief. He's transparent. He's vulnerable. And this is the thing that actually leads to dynamic, powerful faith in the life of this man. He sees healing when he is just honest with the Lord. And I think of how many times we pray and we get on our knees, or maybe we don't even get on our knees. We just throw prayers up there, but we're not honest with him. We, we lie to the God of the universe about how our situation's actually going, not realizing he knows everything anyway. He knows everything you've ever done, everything you're going to do. You might as well be honest with him. And this is where this man's at. He has nothing left. My boy's struggling. He's dying. This demon is killing him. Lord, I believe, but help this place of unbelief. And so Jesus responds and says, if you even have faith of a mustard seed. I mean, he looks at this guy's faith and he goes, boy, that's small faith. That's not much. But even with that, I can work with it. That's just enough for me to be able to work with it. And, and with that faith, you can take mountains and move them. Now, is he talking about physical mountains? Or is he talking about spiritual mountains in this spot? I would tell you, yes. I think, I think he's talking about, yes, physical mountains and spiritual mountains. And for some of you who struggle with spiritual mountains, by the way, uh, you can probably look at it and go, I, I think it's easier to believe a physical mountain could move than the spiritual mountain. I mean, this thing is impossible. But what Jesus is trying to communicate is that all things are possible for those who believe. Thirdly and finally, when we look at observations about uh, this situation and about unbelief, is that with unbelief, it actually causes us to battle Satan in our own strength. And Satan, by the way, uh, lots of times in church we can diminish the power of Satan. I want to be clear, uh, he is no joke. Uh, Paul called him the prince of this air. Uh, Peter called him a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Uh, Jesus even referred to Satan as a strong man. 
Satan is not one to be trifled with in your flesh. I would run, flee the opposite direction as opposed to going up against him. And yet Jesus gives a roadmap of how we are to battle uh, this enemy. He says in verse 21, This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The enemy that we fight is not going to give up easy. He is going to fight hard. He is going to claw, scratch, and cheat. And yet what Jesus says is, if you want to have any hope, all the hope has to be placed in, in him. He who lives within us is greater than he who is in this world. But the key to that is you've got to have him living in you. I mean, he's got to be in you, otherwise you do not stand a fighting chance. And then he gives us tools to use. He says prayer and fasting. What is a prayer? Prayer is attaching yourself to the Father. I've been asked before, why do we pray? We pray so that our will can line up with his will. How does Jesus pray? Your will be done, your kingdom come. By the way, if you want your will to be done, line it up with his will, and then it's going to happen every time. The issue is my will usually wants what I like. I don't necessarily want what the Lord wants. And so as we pray and we grow in prayer, we actually attach ourselves to him, and our will begins to meld and mold into what his will is. And then in the case of fasting, fasting detaches us from our flesh. That's the reality of, fla- of fasting. For most of us, we are, we are operated, we, we operate under the power of our flesh. I, at least, when I drive past the McHugh's, I find that I operate under the power of my flesh because that stinking double drive through gets me every time. I want to go past, I can smell the french fries, and they suck me in, right? It's so difficult to go past the double drive through but, but to operate in our, uh, in our spiritual realm is to be detached from the flesh. And fasting is a way that we can do that. doesn't mean you have to fast for weeks or months at a time, but just simply to perform regular fasting, to offer that up to him as a sacrifice. One of my favorite stories about fasting when it comes to why do we fast, this is actually asked at a uh, Calvary Chapel pastor's conference. So we're a part of this affiliated group of Calvary chapels that teach verse by verse. And they get together in these conferences, uh, mostly in the West Coast, because that's where the the movement started. But they had this whole group of pastors gathered together, and this question was posed to them. Why do we fast? And and even among uh, pastors, it's crickets. I mean, nobody answering. There's one guy in the back of the room, and he, he's a pastor in Bangor, Maine, a guy named Ken Graves, big MMA fighter guy with this awesome voice. I mean, if you ever want to listen to somebody with an awesome voice, this guy talks like this. I mean, he's a man's man. And it, it's, so the whole room is quiet. The question is posed, why do we fast? When up from the back of this quiet room, here's Ken Graves, and he says, because it quiets my flesh. That's why we fast. Because it quiets our flesh. Might have been a little more emphasis than what was necessary to get the point across. But it quiets our flesh. We begin to realize how dominated we actually are by this body. And Christ wants us to not be dominated by the flesh, but by the spirit. How do we do that? Well, We can give him that time and we can come to grips with our humanity. Now, when we look at Jesus per- performing this healing, it's really easy to look at this spot and go, sure, this was easy for him to cast out the demon. I mean, he's God, right? He's God in the flesh. But there are two parts to Jesus, 
And it's important for us as a church to get a good grasp on both. There is a Jesus who is 100% God. That is completely accurate. And he is also, though, at the same time, 100% human. He was 100% both. So for the folks that land on the Jesus is God and God alone, the sovereign side of things, and this, these are the two sides that churches seem to fall on, where it's, it's all about his deity, all about his sovereignty, all about his godship, and he is all those things. But the problem is when his humanity isn't acknowledged, what we end up with is a tough God, an angry God, a God that, that wants rules and regulations to be followed, and they cannot deviate. That's what happens so often in church, that it must be followed in this way, or you're going to go to hell. That's just all the harder it is. But then the other side is uh, Jesus' humanity. There are churches that grab a hold of the humanity of Jesus, and it's all about love and all about care, and it's all about Jesus is human, and so we just fall into love, love, love. And the problem is uh, when it's that side, it's, it's Jesus is my homie. Jesus and I are just homies. We're hanging out. But then there's no sovereignty. There's no sanctity. There's no set-apartness, which is what we were actually called to be. We were called to be a called-out assembly. And so the reality is he has to be both. He has to be both sovereign and human. We have to have both elements of love combined together with truth. And so for these disciples, they cannot uh, perform this what Jesus is telling them is you cannot perform this miracle because you do not have discipline. The root word of disciple is discipline. He's telling them your issue is you don't have any discipline in this area. And we see this in the life of the disciples, right? He calls them out to pray. What do they do? They sleep. He calls them into a place of fasting. They're feasting. He calls them into times of meditation, and they're busy arguing who's greater in the kingdom of heaven. So they're so distracted with all these other things that they lack discipline in all these areas. And what Jesus is saying is if you want to be prepared for battle, you have to have discipline in these spots. And oftentimes we get ourselves in a pinch, and then we begin to pray. And then we begin to fast. When it's already, we're in the middle of the storm. And what he's saying here is you need to fast and pray and get yourself ready. Now, not telling you that you have to, just giving you suggestions when you go into battle. Uh, for me, uh, for a long stretch, uh, when we were getting ready to plant the church and we had all kinds of things going on on our home front, I was traveling uh, to Mattoon and back from Farmington, Missouri. Uh, I would eat on Sunday night, and I would uh, travel, and I wouldn't eat again until Tuesday night when I came back. And it seems kind of crazy to fast for two days at a time, but the reality is my spiritual growth was off the charts because it was a focus upon Jesus and, and him alone. And I'm a guy that is easily dominated by my flesh. And so it was clear to me the issues that I had going on. Now, uh, for some of you, if you want to try this, what I've started to put back into practice again because it's easy, an easy thing to get away uh, from is just eat dinner in the evening and not eat again until I'm back with my family the following evening. Just take a 24-hour window and just spend that breakfast and that lunchtime just praying to him, just looking through Scripture, seeing what it is he might want to show you. You'd be amazed with how many things God will show you in Scripture when you'll give him that time and how prepared you'll be uh, for battle. All right, continuing on, verse 22 of Matthew 17, and now while 
they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And so here in verse 22, Jesus reminds them of the plan. Oftentimes they forget what the plan actually was. His name spoke to what the plan uh, is, what the plan was. His name was Jesus in the Greek. In Hebrew, it was Yeshua, which literally translated means Yahweh is salvation. His very name spoke to his purpose. He was there for salvation. But they heard these uh, words again, and you know it. When Jesus started talking about his death, they were like, oh, there he goes, talking about dying again. such a bummer. Like, Jesus, really, you have to bum us out with the death story again. But they completely missed the best part because they were exceedingly sorrowful when they heard about the death and the betrayal and all the tragedy. They missed the resurrection. What What did he say here in verse 23? He says, on the third day, he'll be raised up. If they would have listened to the whole story, they would have actually been in a place of hope on that crucifixion. They would have been able to hope in the resurrection. And so many times I think how often I don't listen to the whole story. I know my wife could corroborate that, right men? How many times do we only listen to part of the story and then we completely miss the rest of things? Sometimes we even miss the point entirely because we didn't listen to the whole story. And so when I only focus on part of the story, what I find is I can easily be depressed. When I'm struggling physically, I'm struggling spiritually, and I only focus on part of the story, I only focus on what things aren't going right, it's so easy to fall into a point of depression. But the reality is, if you focus on the whole story, what Jesus is trying to communicate about the entire picture is, we've got a promise of glory. (laughs) We, We have got this unbelievable salvation. Why? Because of the resurrection. Don't miss that last piece. Don't miss focusing in on that because the promise here is actually eternity. There's something way better that he has in mind. There's a glorified body. We got to see a glimpse of it last week at the beginning of Matthew 17. And so for these guys, they were left in this place of being depressed and upset because they, they missed the rest of the story. Now then in verse 24, And when they had come to Capernaum, this is still in that Galilee region, Those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, Well, yes. But when they had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? Uh, From who do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter said to him, From strangers. But so Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. But nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes out first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find in it a piece of money. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. And so we see this amazing miracle of Peter going fishing and actually coming back with his taxes paid in full. I love this miracle for a couple reasons. First of all, this is the only miracle regarding money. It's the only one recorded in any of the gospel accounts, and it's only recorded in Matthew's gospel, which is fascinating to me because Matthew, you remember what his career was? He was 
a tax man, right? He was a tax collector. And so Matthew has a penchant for finance. He likes dealing with money. This is something that God actually gave him as a gift was to be a tax collector. And what, what you see is Jesus will take things that we like, things that we enjoy, and he'll actually connect them back into our life to make us more effective. This story resonated with Matthew. It meant something to him. Maybe it doesn't mean to the other guys that wrote their accounts. And so oftentimes what God will do is he'll take what we're involved in, he'll take uh, those things that we like, those hobbies, the things that we enjoy, and he'll actually connect us to him through those things. It's a beautiful thing. I also like that this emphasizes uh, Jesus as king. He, he asks Peter, who has to pay taxes, the king's sons or strangers? He's saying, look, I'm the king. I'm the king in this spot, so who should have to pay taxes and who should not? Thirdly, I like that this points out his omniscience. Think about Jesus giving Peter this command. Go to the sea, one man, take one fishing pole, Throw out one hook, catch one fish, and it'll have the exact amount of money you need for me and you to pay our taxes. I mean, imagine that. That's such a crazy miracle. Of all the things Jesus did, nothing could show or exhibit maybe as much of his omniscience than that. He had command even over nature. And then you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, and what you see is that um, God actually gave that ability to Adam. He gave Adam dominion, the ability to rule over the fish in the sea, the animals on the land, even the skies. Adam had control over all of it, but because of sin, he gave it up. So as Paul addresses Jesus as our last Adam, the final Adam is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. And so here he is. He now has dominion, has control even over nature. And so you see the connection between these two different Adams. I also uh, enjoy Peter. you got to love how he's not afraid to give an answer, even when he has no earthly idea. They approach him and they say, hey, does your master, uh, your teacher, pay the temple tax? And Peter just says, well, sure, of course he does. I have no idea. I mean, he has no idea if Jesus pays the tax. He's scared out of his mind because he's like, oh, man, I sure hope Jesus pays the taxes. And then you begin to think, how many times do we get put in this spot? Right? We're defending our faith, and someone asks us a question. What is your God? What is your Bible? What does your Jesus say about this? Well, my Jesus says this, blah, blah, blah. And then you walk away and go, boy, I have no idea if Jesus actually said that or not. <laughs> I sure hope he did. But we find ourselves in a position where so often we want to defend God. We want to actually stand up for the word of God, but we get way too far out there ahead of ourselves, and the reality is, God doesn't need defended. <laughs> he doesn't need to de be defended by anybody. And so this is very much the case with Peter. He's trying to help God out a little bit. He gets himself out over his skis, but you have to love the grace that Jesus shows him because as soon as he walks into the house, he says, hey, Simon, who should pay the taxes? Is it the sons or the strangers? But I like what Jesus says as we get to the close today. And this is going to be some of the most unpopular things I've said so far this morning. Uh, but I'm going to say them anyway. Because here's what he says in verse 27. He says, even though the sons are free, nevertheless, lest we offend them, go and offer up the taxes. He submitted himself to authority. 
This is the God of the universe submitting himself to the authority of men. Now, to back up and talk about the temple tax, because I know you guys are fascinated by temple taxes, this actually begins in Exodus 38. This is the tabernacle tax. Uh, If you're going through our daily Bible reading, we covered this last week, is that uh, Moses commanded that all the men there in the tribe of uh, the nation of Israel, they were all to give a half a shekel of silver uh, to the tabernacle for its construction. And so at that time, they took all these half shekel offerings and they melted them down and they actually used this for the foundational support for the post to set in for the tabernacle. So this giving was actually a part of the construction of the tabernacle itself. This is where the posts were to be set. Now that tabernacle tax in the time of Jesus, some 1,600 years later, became the temple tax. Now you've got the temple, the the second temple period, the temple constructed by Herod, uh, began in Zerubbabel, finished by Herod, and they're required to give a half shekel of silver for every male 20 years or older to maintain and keep up with the temple itself. And so every male had to give this tax. And so this is the reasoning behind the tax, except if you were royalty. Kings were not required to pay taxes. And one of the interesting examples of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is a story we're all familiar with, with David and Goliath, right? David goes and he slays this giant who's speaking blasphemies against God. That's an awesome story. But right before that, King Saul says, if anyone would come and slay this giant, I'm going to give them the hand of my daughter, making him the king's son-in-law, and to his family, they would no longer be required to pay taxes. That's a big deal. It was a big deal for David to slay Goliath, don't get me wrong, but any of you have been paying taxes for as long as I have, and as long as I have left to still pay them, uh, that's a pretty awesome deal to get out of paying taxes. So no doubt David's like, hey, I'll slay a giant and get out of paying taxes. All that to say that for Jesus, it was not required for him to pay taxes. He's the king of kings, the lord of lords. He's paying a temple tax to the very temple that was built for him. I mean, if anyone should have been able to get out of paying taxes, it's Jesus. And yet, he submits himself to the authority of men. Now, as Peter is commanded to go and give this uh, money, this half shekel. It's a reminder that salvation is free. Notice Jesus didn't have him go fishing and only get a half shekel, but a full shekel of silver, enough to pay him for himself and for Peter. He has a salvation for free. And I bring that up because uh, metals in the Bible, just like numbers in the Bible, have meaning. The number of gold is a royal number. It's purity. It's, it's kingly. But, the, but silver, the metal silver is actually the metal of redemption. What Jesus is actually saying is, I'm going to pay for your salvation. I'm going to pay for you and me. And so we have this free gift of salvation that's offered to us. But the reality about the free gift, um, it's extremely costly for Jesus. For he had to give everything for you and I to have a free gift. And I can't help but think, that Peter's considering this in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says in verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed, you are not bought back. Silver is the metal of 
redemption, remember, with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish or spot. You weren't bought with silver or gold. You were bought by the blood of the lamb. He's the one who had to give everything so we could have this free gift of salvation. The second point as we wrap up that I wanted to point out that's just as unpopular as submitting to authority is that it was more important for Jesus to pay than to offend. He was willing to submit himself and pay what he did not owe so that he would not offend them. Verse 27 says, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea and cast the hook. I don't want to offend them. Even though I don't owe it, I'm willing to submit myself to make myself a subject to their authority because I don't want them to be offended. It's how I'm showing to conduct myself. Moving on with what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or governors or those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of the foolish. As free, yet not being not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Whew. So here we are, 2021, in America. And what do we love more than anything? We love our rights. We want to stand up for our rights. We want to defend our rights at all cost. What Jesus is actually saying, what Peter is referring to, is actually laying down our rights. Not our rights just strictly as a citizen of this country. He's talking about our rights as kings and queens of God. Princes and princesses. If you believe in Jesus, you are royalty. You are one of his. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. And how do we show that off? By submitting to authority. That's what Peter's referring to. Not using our liberty as a cloak for vice. Don't use your liberty as a reason just to go about sinning, breaking laws, doing things you know you ought not to do just because you are a, a king's kid. He's saying you get to show off by actually showing that you're a bondservant to God by honoring all people, honoring even the king, lowercase king. As Peter writes this, he's writing under the rule and authority of a guy named Caesar Nero, who so hated Christians that he would actually take them, impale them, dip them in hot wax, and set them on fire. That's where the phrase, a Roman candle, came from. Not a great guy, needless to say. Peter's saying, submit to that guy. And then we look around, it makes things not look so bad. I mean, I haven't seen anybody get impaled lately or set on fire. So, I mean, we're doing pretty well. So then we come to our rights that we want to stand so hard and fast for. I will do this. I won't do that. I'm standing firm on these things. We have to ask ourselves, is it actually causing us to sin? Does it violate God's word, what we're being asked to do? And so often, especially in this current season that we're in, I'd have to tell you no. Other than uh, not forsaking the fellowship of the brethren. I mean, we are called to congregate. 
unless the government said you will not congregate. In California, they were going that route. I would tell you as a pastor, I could look at that and go, yes, I need to not congregate. It is okay for us to violate what they're asking us to do because it goes directly against God's word. But we've taken stances on things that are way more trivial than that. And we post it on Facebook and we get all indignant about it. And the reality is, as a king's kid, I actually get to show how much I love him by submitting, by laying down my rights. Because as I lay down my rights, it actually props up the gospel. That's the reality. I told you it was going to be unpopular, <laughs> but that's the reality. I get to prop up the gospel by laying my rights at the feet of the king. Now then, one final point. Here we have Peter. And he shows in this spot just how faithful and how humble he was willing to be. Now this is the same guy, by the way, that just a, a few uh, chapters before he was actually rebuked by Jesus for speaking out of turn. He got ahead of himself lots of times. And Peter was known as a, as a rough guy, as a, as a big guy. Church history says he was this large character, this big fisherman. I mean, we know about fishermen. Even today, watch Deadliest Catch. Those guys are a little gruff. They're a little rough, right? It's like working with construction guys. They're going to be tough guys you don't want to trifle with. And you certainly uh, don't want to do anything that might get you made fun of. Peter's known as a guy that's not afraid to just well up and punch you right in the nose if he didn't like what you had to say. And so Jesus asked this rough and tough fisherman, he says, look, I want you to go down and I want you to, to fish. Well, that makes sense. I mean, he's a fisherman. Jesus is asking him to go fish. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is um, nobody on the Sea of Galilee that was of any reputation would have gone down and fishing with a fly fishing pole. Nobody would have. These were big, burly dudes. They caught fish with a net, and they hauled in their catch, and they flexed a little bit. Peter went down there with a little bitty fishing pole, like a Snoopy pole, and a little fishing hook on it, knowing that when he went down to the dock, down to the area where all the guys that he'd worked with for all those years, when they were cussing and fighting and drinking and carrying on, being men, that they were going to immediately make fun of him. Here comes little Petey with his little fishing pole. Hey, Petey, Petey, with your little pole. You're going to catch a little fish, Petey. Is it what you're going to do today with your little pole? I mean, you know that's the way they were talking to him. As he throws that line out, it had to just be shameful. But here's the reality about humility, is that the greatest teacher of humility is oftentimes humiliation that's just the facts that we are so full of pride we are often never humbled until we are first utterly humiliated and so here's peter big and tough he walks directly into a spot where he knows he's going to be humiliated and i think i really do think when i look at chapter 5 of first peter this is precisely what's on his mind when he quotes from isaiah there in verse five he says god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble oh how proud he'd been in his life and he knew god resists the proud but he gives grace to those that are willing to be humble therefore verse six humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god look if we don't humble ourselves under the hand of god we are going to be humbled 
That's the reality about humility. You're either going to be humbled in this life or you're going to be humbled in the next. My recommendation to you, my strong exhortation to you, be humbled in this life so you do not have to be humbled in the next because what he says here is he says that he, God, may exalt you in due time. For those that are humbled in this life will actually be exalted. And in verse 7, casting, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. That's the reality of what Peter's trying to share is look, we can get all hung up. We can get all worked up about our situation. I don't want to be humbled in this spot. I don't want to confess to that thing. I don't want to look like a fool here, so I'm just going to avoid it. And what he's actually saying is cast your cares upon him. Throw caution to the wind when it comes to sharing the gospel because those who humble themselves in this life will actually be exalted in the next. And so finally, for Peter, here's a guy who is so quick to interrupt things. He was so quick to interrupt there on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's good for us to be here. I'm going to build you a tent. But what God says is he opens the heaven last week and we looked. He said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. He redirects things back to Jesus. And, and Peter, no doubt, listened to that story. He doesn't interrupt God when he's commanded to go down and fish. And so because of this, he is greatly exalted. His debts are paid. Things are taken care of because he's willing to be interrupted to hear from Jesus. And I think about how often am I actually willing to be interrupted so I can hear from Jesus. My schedule is so full, I allow things to be so packed in that I leave almost no room for the Holy Spirit to work. No room for him to divinely interrupt my day. And then I wonder, why doesn't God work in my life? Well, I only gave him from 12 to 12.15. Surely that's enough time for him to work. So what we learn from this story, it's to be ready to be interrupted by God at any point in time. Let him reorient your day. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing to plan out a day, but don't get all spun out when he intentionally interrupts it and tells you to go fishing. Father God, thank you. And we praise you for your word. We praise you for the way that it relates. And it, it seeps down between the cracks and the crevices, Lord, that it gets in places that we uh, don't often want it to go, especially when it comes to things like submission. We hate the idea of submitting. I mean, it's just a part of our American culture. We do not like to give up or back down. Thank you, Father for the encouragement to submit. Thank you that as we give up our rights, we get to actually prop up the gospel because we know that this life is not everything, but the next life has got everything to offer. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be humbled so that we can be exalted in the age to come. And thank you, Father, for interrupting us. Thank you for stirring up our day, for sending people Uh, to interact with us so that we can pray for them so that we can prop them up in their time of need Lord give us eyes to be able to see those things Lord help us as we want to give things to you like prayer and fasting so that we can be prepared to see what it is that Holy Spirit that you're up to and Holy Spirit please come down upon us and rest mildly upon our shoulders today please give us power like the New Testament church had when it started. 
that we can speak into people's lives and we can see you moving in our own. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You please stand for a closing song. encourage you, uh, be vulnerable. I know that's not popular to say, but in vulnerability with one another, with the people you're surrounded with, there is such a dynamite power that's actually available. And it does get easier, by the way. Vulnerability does. You begin to realize that it's him we actually cast our cares upon, and he cares for us. 
So God bless you guys. Have an awesome day.